sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. We have Mrs. Carswell back this episode for our special Halloween show. Happy Halloween! Yes, uh, happy Halloween. Uh, We'll be getting to part two of our Horror Hosts survey, discussing Horror Hosts of the 1960s this time. Since our primary sources for this are the shows themselves, Mrs. Carswell won't be providing any readings from any of the books in the collections. No reading from books? readings from bees. Yes, as promised. We got a surprising number of requests from those of you wanting your fortunes told. By the bees. Yes, by the bees. If you're just jumping into the show, you may not be aware that Mrs. Carswell is an expert beekeeper from a long line of beekeepers, including an uncle and aunt who ran a performing bee show in the 1960s. Two kinds of shows, a bee circus and a psychic bee show. And we'll be presenting a sort of trial-run version of the latter, a short sampling at least. I didn't have as much information as I'd hoped from the original Psychic Bee show, so we improvised a lot. Mr. Reidenauer had some historic sources on fortune-telling that helped. A book from the 1800s, but as I was saying, we've had many requests over the last weeks, and because the process of uh, extracting each individual fortune from the bees is rather involved... We unfortunately won't be doing all the readings in this recording. Honestly, I think we'll probably only have time for one. But we'll do more after the show and send out your fortunes, just not on air. Yes, by email or messenger or however you submitted your request originally. I'm going to put on my outfit now if you're ready to start. I guess we are. And I should also introduce our organist. I thought the atmosphere would be enhanced with a little music, so we have Kimrick Phelps with us, an organist from the silent movie Organist Guild. From my old Hammond B3. Not a theater organ, but it'll do. And I should probably... Oh, we have the lights dimmed now. Just about ready. Okay, well, give me a second. You'll hear the cue. So, uh, let me set the scene. The study is completely dark now, but for a pool of light shining down on a square black board with playing cards laid out in concentric circles. It's a traditional Neapolitan deck, and each of these 40 cards, I should note, is associated with a particular sort of fortune, as uh, described in the 1894 publication, a manual of cartomancy, fortune-telling, and occult divination, including the Oracle of Human Destiny by H.J. Marzella. And uh, next to the board on a pedestal covered in red silk sits an urn containing our psychic bees. I have uh, an additional mic within the tent, so you'll be able to hear not only Mrs. Carswell, but also the bees as they go about their task. It's really quite striking. The whole setup is tented with mosquito netting for the safety of Mr. Phelps and myself, and the effect of the light on the netting creates a sort of filmy, glowing, haloed area in which the bees will perform. 
And I think, yes, I believe she's ready. I see a shadowy form moving just outside the tent now, rustling the netting, passing through the barrier and into the light. Mrs. Carswell enters wearing a golden robe sewn with mystic symbols and a jeweled turban sits atop her head. And she has now taken her position behind the urn, hands folded over its lid. I, uh, I think she's ready. Okay. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Carswell's Amazing Psychic Bees. Over 3,000 years ago, a living queen bee and 12 drones were sealed within a marble receptacle and deposited in the tomb of Zahur of Nubia, magician and scribe to Thotmose III. Over 900 years, in darkness and silence, the bees slept a mysterious living sleep, disrupted finally by the intrusion of grave robbers. The urn passed through the hands of Phoenician traders to the Greeks and to their settlements on the southern tip of the Italian peninsula. There, the urn was unsealed by an unknown magician whose spellwork awakened them and developed with them a language of signs whereby they were made to reveal their knowledge of things that lie within and beyond time. Today, translated into the symbols of ordinary playing cards, this knowledge can be shared. Who will know their future? We have a petitioner by the name of Tyler Lomanak. He appeals to the bees to know what they might reveal of his future in the coming year. The bees have heard. The bees will answer. Okay, um, Mrs. Carswell is lifting the lid from the urn. It's open. There's a bee. Two bees are out. Three are being used, but I only see two. No, there's the third. They're flying, zigzagging over the board. Through the light, you just see little glints. Mrs. Carswell's making some sort of slow, repetitive gesture over the board. The, the bees are crossing paths in front of her, flying lower. Two of them together. And she's, it's almost as if she's stirring something over the board. And one of the bees is definitely following. Wait, the third bee touched down on the board. Just for a second, he's back up. The two others are sort of flying in tandem almost. Up to the light. Oh, I thought I lost them, but no, the one is down. One's down on the board. Not on a card between the rows, between the cards. But he's moving. He's he's on a card. Two are on cards now. Not the same card, but close together. They're just sitting and it's and two the two are now closer together, one on a card, one between cards. Close though, getting closer. The third is touching down, flying up. He's back down. No, again. Two, two. There are two on the same card. The third bee is touched down. He's not far. He's he's back up. We're waiting for all three. All, all three must choose the card together. That's how it works. 
Mrs. Carswell, she's bending. It's remarkable, perhaps painful. Then it's, it's like the bees are shaking. They're doing something with their legs. The two right in the middle of the card, the same card. And the third is moving closer, closer. Little fits and spurts. It's not flying, it's just crawling. Just inching closer. And there he is. There he is. That's it. Three on a card and the lights go out. Okay, we're back. We're back. The bees had to be returned to the urn, but we have the chosen card. Yes, three of pentacles. Pentacles or diamonds refer to money, career, communication, or contracts. So it is on this topic that the bees speak. And the number three? A three indicates change, but slow progression. In increase, but incremental growth that branches out. Well, there you go, Tyler Lomanak. It sounds uh, cautiously optimistic, I suppose. Nothing dramatic. Nothing boring. This turban gives me a headache. Oh, well, take it off. So, are we done now this one take? Yes. I'll call the movers for the organ then. Is there a grocery or liquor store in the neighborhood? We're still recording. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the jewel came off. It came off the turban, off the headband. I think it's in the tent. Okay, well, we'll take a break. That's our Halloween fortune-telling, I guess. As you can see, it takes some time to generate each individual fortune, but uh, we will be contacting all of you shortly with your requested readings. Mrs. Carswell's going to uh, go look for her jewel, I guess. And we're running long, so we're skipping all the Patreon formalities this time, and we'll go directly into the show. That is episode 78. Horror Hosts, Part 2. Your attention. Your attention. This is Morgus the Magnificent. On Saturday night, when I go for my day, my baby and I just... Sit and wait for Argus the Magnificent. You're hearing a 1959 single released by Dr. Morgus, host of House of Shock out of New Orleans. Shaggy hair is right. Morgus wore a wild mad scientist wig, uh, brown, not white, however, and more notably, grotesque false teeth and a bit of grease paint around his eyes to make them pop. His laboratory was said to be housed in a garret over the old city ice house, with the fire escape exiting out to Pirate's Alley in the French Quarter. They said I was a nut. <laughs> they said that I ran nothing but experiments that were monstrosities of idiotic proportions. <laughs> we'll soon As with most mad doctors, Marcus bears an oversized grudge against the scientific establishment, his true allies are a long-suffering lab assistant named Chopsley, who speaks in the resonant voice you heard in the spoken introduction to the song. The master is never wrong. Well, I, I didn't want to say it myself. However, you will see success before your very eyes as I could... Yet, somehow, all the experiments Morris conducts during shock theater intros and commercial breaks are disastrous. Now, 
The perpetual scapegoat for these disasters is the assistant Chopsley, who is portrayed by an actor in a henchman's robe, but with the hood covering his face, uh, for good reason, we find out. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't talk. Uh, I did a little plastic surgery on his face uh, just a short while ago, but uh, it hasn't healed yet. Ten years ago. One last character, a nemesis to the mad doctor. Uh, despite claiming he comes from a long line of geniuses, going back to the uh, architect of the Great Pyramid, Morgus's uh, futile tinkering in the lab doesn't pay the rent, so he's constantly pursued by his landlady, the curiously named Alma Fetish. Morgus was portrayed by actor Sid Rideau, or Sid Noel as he's sometimes billed, he was a native of New Orleans, a graduate of broadcasting school, and was working as a DJ when he applied to WWL-TV to host House of Shock in late 1958. His career as Morgus was a long one, extending into the 1980s, though all the while he went to great pains to keep from the public his identity, the identity of the actor who played Morgus. His own children reportedly didn't even know who played the character. Response to the show must have been pretty positive. After being on the air for only two years, Rideau's adventures as Morgus were expanded into a uh, feature-length film, albeit a locally produced film, that premiered in New Orleans. The wacky world of Dr. Morgus. Morgus upon electro instant people machine. A creation long awaited by the masterminds of science. The uh, Morgusatron, or whatever it's called, has something to do with transforming people into sand and back again. Um, and uh, he's pursued by international spies who want to steal the invention. In 1963, Rideau moved to Detroit, where he hosted a horror show, Morgus Presents, as well as appearing as a weekday weatherman five times weekly. His five-minute weather segments were done as Morgus and devoted only perhaps 30 seconds to reading actual forecasts. Oh, hi, friends. Just going through my fan mail I got today. Let's see here. Dear Dr. Morgus, I watch your scientific program because it helps me. I am going to be a clown someday at... Oh, some of them are not nice, uh, kind of sarcastic. Uh, here's, here's a nice one. By 1965, however, he was back in New Orleans and had rebooted his show as Morgus Presents, which uh, ran till 1968 and again from uh, 70 to 71. His show was uh, recreated again in 1987 with a few changes other than transforming Eric, the skull, into a talking computer. Apparently, he still had the magic as he was recruited to sell burgers for a New Orleans area chain, Tasty Donuts. Everybody's trying to get the secret to the Castle Burger. I think I've got a chop thing. Rideau died in 2020, but was making public in-character appearances up into the early 2000s, especially around Mardi Gras, it seems. We'll return to 1964 to close out our segment with a single he released that year, Werewolf. At the House of the Seven Candles, a coffee spot renowned. A werewolf passed as a beatnik, and they never put him down. The riverfront was quiet, with the break of dawn in sight, when this beatist congregation 
gathered for the night. In the dead of night, when the moon is high and the ill winds blow, and the banshees cry, and the moonlight casts an unearthly glow, arise, my love, with tales of Sammy Terry, semi Terry, get it, emerged from his coffin weekly in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was a stout figure in a maroon cape with a hood pulled up around a mint green face, grease painted with a childlike abandon, and an oversized skull pendant, and yellow leather gloves, for some reason, completed his uh, cartoonish look. His uh, sometimes creepy, sometimes jokey shtick, occasionally involving a dangling rubber spider by the name of George, was typical for a horror host, but he's noteworthy for the longevity of his career and for attracting a large fan base despite broadcasting out of a smaller city. Played by Bob Carter, Sammy Terry broadcast his first episode of Nightmare Theater in 1962 and continued hosting the show all the way up until 1989. In 2010, his son Mark picked up the character in a perfectly matched makeup and costume and appearing in occasional special broadcasts, online shows, and at conventions and other live events. It is Saturday night, time for Chiller Theater and Chilly Billy Cardilly. Broadcasting out of Pittsburgh, Chili Billy Cardill, or Cardilly sometimes to make it rhyme, was the host of Chiller Theater, which also had a long run from 1963 to 83. The set on which he appeared was done up like the interior of a haunted castle, but his look was his own. No vampire or mad scientist, just a guy in a suit and tie offering sly commentary on the often uh, substandard film screen. But as the show progressed into the 70s, various sidekick characters were added. Norman the Castle Keeper, who looked a bit like Marty Feldman. Uh, the uh, Castle Prankster, played by a little person. A silent seductress known as Terminal Stare. And Georgette the Fudge Maker. I'm not sure about that one. I guess she made fudge. Before hosting Chiller Theater, Cardell had previously worked as a DJ, umpire, and voiceover artist. His show was uh, Pittsburgh's second go at hosted horror. From 1958 to 1959, a rival station had a show called 13th Hour, with a host called Igor, played by someone who, when he wasn't Igor, was also hosting the station's religious program, Not Just Sunday. Pittsburgh native George Romero was also a fan of the show and cast Cardill as a reporter at the end of his Night of the Living Dead. 
uh, if I were surrounded by six or eight of these things, would I stand a chance with them? Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. That's a sure way to kill him. If you don't get yourself... Cardell also appears as a zombie in Day of the Dead, in which his uh, daughter Lori played the lead. And in the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead, Cardell again appeared as a television interviewer. He also released a single in 1971, because that's what all the horror hosts were doing. It's the Chili Billy Vamp. Chili Billy is my name. Chili Theater is my game. Come now and follow me. Now, in our previous episode, I mentioned the connection between youth culture trends of the 50s and horror hosts, for example, the beatnik host Marvin the Nearsighted Madman in Chicago. In this episode, we'll see a few more examples of this trend, which continued full force into the 1960s. One of the most famous examples here, or the most famous, would be the character of Goulardi, who began hosting Shock Theater in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1963. Affecting a sort of beatnik meets Transylvanian mode of speech, actor Ernie Anderson donned a lab coat covered in oversized slogan buttons, wore a fake Van Dyke beard and mustache, and a ridiculous wig that looked like something improvised out of a scrap of uh, extra plush shag carpet. Sunglasses with one lens popped out were also sometimes uh, part of the ensemble. His uh, free-flowing commentary was peppered with trademark phrases, be cool, stay sick, turn blue and scratch glass, among others, and he always addressed his audience as group. Group! It's going to be a good night. And as with other horror hosts, he wasn't above the occasional bit of punny wordplay. No, Bullardi was very honest. He was a poor but honest rich boy. Naturally, he graduated magna cum laude. <laughs> oh, that's kind of reaching out there, baby. He accepted his first job. And he was also inclined to ridicule the low-quality production of the film packages he was given to host. Dear Mr. Goulardi, like so many Clevelanders, we enjoy Channel 8 science fiction movies. Can you believe there's somebody that enjoys these movies? He also made use of the uh, visual drop-ins pioneered by Zachary, as discussed last time, uh, inserting himself occasionally into the scenes, appearing next to a caveman gnawing at a bone and offering to take him out for pizza or... Uh, inserted into a crowd of panicking people fleeing from a monster, specifically the crab monster of attack of the crab monster. Gularney was hugely popular. He supposedly was watched by two-thirds of all viewers within the uh, broadcast area and far outranked the national competitor in that time slot, The Tonight Show. The year he started, he was given a second weekend show hosting old comedy films called Laurel, Goulardi, and Hardy, and he created his own baseball team, the Goulardi All-Stars, which drew thousands of spectators for charity games. But not everyone was thrilled about Goulardi mania. Uh, parents didn't like that he uh, smoked on the air, and he was also usually drunk, according to his uh, assistant's testimony. Uh, nor did they like him encouraging kids to send in toys and models which he would blow up with firecrackers on air. Watch it for the boom booms over there. You won't believe what this is going to do. <laughs> Beautiful, I liked it. it was Anderson would get into fights with the management and park his oil-dripping motorcycle in the news director's office. He kept a pet raven at the station which would drip 
all over the premises in that uh, special way birds do. The raven's name was Oxnard, the name of a small town, which in Goulardi's idiosyncratic lingo translated to basically nowheresville, a sort of a purgatory for those with uh, no style or skill or get up and go. Whenever anything was in trouble, I'd say, Dad, I don't think I'm going to graduate. He would always say, Oxnard, kid. The nearby town of Parma also became shorthand for everything square and suburban, with uh, polka music being uh, played in the show as its uh, musical equivalent. What is that? Does this program go to Parma? What is but that? But actor Ernie Anderson's aspirations weren't exactly satisfied by Cleveland, either. In 1966, he went to Hollywood to shoot a pilot for a TV show with the encouragement of comedian and fellow Clevelander Tim Conway, who had previously worked with Anderson on local TV, but was now a regular on the ABC sitcom, McHale's Navy. Nothing came of that, but Anderson's taste of Hollywood was enough for him to set aside the Gulardi character and relocate to Los Angeles. By the 1970s, he'd become the announcer for ABC. It's the Osmond family rocking and reeling under the big top with special guest stars, the Barber. Huh. And Sounds a little Parma to me. Or not Oxnard, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, the personality, including the look and catchphrases of Goulardi, if not the name, was resurrected in 1971 when Anderson's assistant, Ron Sweet, began hosting horror films uh, on what he called The Ghoul Show, which was on and off the air in Cleveland and Detroit up until about 2003. Goulardi has uh, lived on as a symbol of Cleveland pride and was particularly influential on uh, Lux Interior and Poison Ivy of the Cramps, both Ohio natives. Their 1994 album, Stay Sick, was titled with a Goulardi catchphrase, and when Anderson died, they dedicated their 1997 album to him. The very first single from 1978 covered a song Goulardi would frequently use in his show. I should probably also mention that director Paul Thomas Anderson happens to be the son of Goulardi, or uh, Ernie Anderson, that is. <laughs> ah, my fiends. Welcome once again to the graveyard. <laughs> I spend a lot of time here. It's nice to be among old friends. <laughs> Broadcasting out of Henderson, Nevada, and covering the Las Vegas area, Jim Parker hosted the local shock theater shows on and off from 1964 to 1972 as the Vegas Vampire. He had the beatnik's black turtleneck and shaggy hair, but also sported a bushy mustache, skull pendant, and velvet cape. One of his on-air gimmicks involved sticking pins in voodoo dolls of local and national celebrities and politicians and soliciting from fans requests for something similar aimed at their personal enemies. Yes, uh, Vegas vampire, this is a bloody stake for the heart of the social studies teacher at James Cashman Junior High School from John Duncan. It's meant for Mrs. Ross. My goodness. A former DJ, news reporter, and stock car racing promoter, Parker had a rotating stable of sidekicks, including his wife Paula as a character named Satana. 
At the show's height, Parker would occasionally convince bigger-name celebrities performing in Vegas to drop in. Not big, big names, but bigger. Red Buttons and Frank Sinatra Jr., for instance. He was known to cruise the Las Vegas Strip in a hearse branded with his show's name and was always up to be an honorary guest at business openings and groundbreakings. In 1971, he appeared in an embarrassingly bad and actually pornographic film, The Mad Love Life of a Hot Vampire by uh, Ray Dennis Steckler, the cult director. He wasn't actually in an erotic role. Um, Parker also released a single. I don't have the date, but the name is simply Vegas Vampire. Who is the prince of gold? The Vegas Vampire! Who will steal your blood and leave you in the mud? He will slash your chest and eat your heart out. Because I love the taste of human blood. <laughs> the ghoul is cool. Tis a delight to be entertained on Saturday night. By that funny fiend, so charming and sweet, with his bloodshot eyes and dancing feet. And oh, his laugh, we can't forget that. And his clothes, red hair, and groovy hat. He's really quite handsome, and we've really flipped, in spite of the fact that he sleeps in a crypt. That's a snippet from the 1971 record, The Cool Ghoul's Phantasmagorical Funky Phonograph Record. Phonograph spelled with an F. The uh, cool ghoul here, not being Philadelphia's Zachary, because it's not like he copyrighted that nickname, but instead he's the host of Cincinnati's Scream In series, which ran from 1968 to 1972. He was played by Dick Von Hain, who doubled as a news anchor at the station. From 1970 to 1971, he also served as a horror host for another series on the station, albeit an off-camera. That one was called Shock It To Me, named after a catchphrase used in the hugely popular comedy show of the day, Laugh-In, from which uh, Scream-In also probably derives its name. Um, as you can probably tell, even from the record title, the phantasmagorical funky phonograph record, that is, we've moved beyond the uh, beatnik world into the full bloom of hippie flower power culture. And the cool ghouls look reflected this. He wore uh, a strange red sleeveless robe and green plaid hat and sported longish orange hair. His eyes were encircled in black and he spoke in a sort of clown-like falsetto, often punctuating his words with a, uh, a sort of uh, odd trademark sound or call. There aren't any uh, entire shows available, but I did find him demonstrating this famous sound in one of his many intermittent television appearances he continued to do into the 1980s, especially around Halloween. Everyone asked me, where did the cool ghoul learn how to go? So, all together, there was something cartoonish about the cool ghoul, as if uh, Von Hain regarded Scream and more as a children's show for little kids. The initial design of his makeup, for instance, had been revised after a test shoot as it was deemed too scary for little kids, though the black shadowing of his eye sockets wasn't altered, nor the fact that he was supposed to live in a crypt. 
Were other strange compromises made? Von Hain also was known to preview films presented and edit out anything he deemed inappropriate for kids. Not remove it altogether, but show those excised bits after the movie's end when only the older kids presumably would be awake. Some of this uh, orientation towards kids may have come from Von Hain's earlier experiences doing comedy bits with uh, puppeteer Larry King, whose Hattie the Witch character became an occasional scream-in sidekick. You can hear them together here in a recording made as a show anniversary greeting to fellow horror host Sammy Terry. Hello to everybody in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is the cool goal from WXIX Television, Channel 19 in Cincinnati, Ohio. And... In addition to Hattie the Witch, there was one other recurrent character on Scream In, though it was only as an off-screen presence, one directly addressed sometimes or obsessively referenced by the cool ghoul, and that would be Gladys Purple Lips. She was his long-lost high school sweetheart, and I'm not sure how this sort of sad and adult theme was supposed to dovetail with children's interests, and what makes it all the more tragic was uh, Von Hain being in his 30s while portraying the cool ghoul, which would suggest that this uh, was supposed to be a decades-long obsession. And it's worse still, given the fact that Gladys Purple Lips is supposed to be dead, either a sort of ghost that haunts the uh, cool ghoul or an off-camera corpse. Uh, are the purple lips, perhaps they were that color when he saw her as a corpse? I don't know. Is the cool ghoul himself also supposed to be dead? This would explain him living in a crypt. Again, I don't know the answer here, but there is something unsettling in this sort of necrophilic uh, implication of it all, and it's and it's not helped by the cool ghoul's uh, creepy clown persona. For me, the collective effect of all this makes the cool ghoul the only horror host who I would actually consider scary. And we'll return to this character to unveil one last horrible tidbit at the end of our show, but for now, we'll close this chapter with a snippet from his record, a bit of the song Ode to Gladys' Purple Lips, and see for yourself if he seems a bit unstable. I needed your tenderness. I needed it so bad. A sweet, sweet ghoul like you, Gladys. Since then, I've never had Gladys. Gladys. Purple lips. Continuing deeper into hippie territory. Sorry, we come to Svengooly who hosted horror movies out of Chicago from 1970 to 1973. That is, the Svengulias played by Jerry G. Bishop. In uh, 1979, a fan of Bishop's and uh, eventual show writer, Rich Coase, took over the role and continues to perform as Svenguli and promote the character to the present day. Though Coase had a much longer run, we'll stick with Bishop Svenguli as he fits within our 40-year window, 1931 to 71, that is. Unlike the later uh, goateed and top-hatted character played by Coase, the original Svengooly looked pretty much like a dead hippie, 
His face was painted a deathly white, and he had long hair, headband, and beard. The hair usually tinted green, but sometimes a natural hue. He always wore shades and quite often had a guitar at hand. He spoke in something a bit like a Transylvania accent, as you can hear. Yes, yes, music lovers, yes. Svengoli again with the program that asks the question, why is Timothy Leary? Huh? He pay a book a piece for him. That's probably right. Listen, kids, how would you... The uh, second voice uh, belongs to Svengoli's sidekick, Zelda, a uh, disembodied skull, sometimes shown in cutaways and sometimes uh, superimposed, floating over the set. Her voice, also performed by Bishop, is an imitation of a then-popular drag character done by the comedian Flip Wilson. Uh, Svengoolie also had a diminutive ventriloquist dummy made up to look like himself called Durwood. Another dated tie-in would be the odd name of the show, Screaming Yellow Theater, a play on a type of caramel corn, Screaming Yellow Zonkers, which in name and packaging and marketing was aggressively... Um, pitched as psychedelic and absurdist in the way Bishop imagined his show, I suppose. At the beginning of each episode, Singuli would emerge from a likewise uh, psychedelically painted coffin and deliver this opening rhyme. Oh, yes. Listen, the time has come for scary things like monsters, ghosts, and vampire babies, like horrible movies, all drippy and drooly, and horrible hosts like me, Bruce Cabot, well, that's a joke. Bruce Cabot was the notoriously wooden actor from the original King Kong. ...tonight's program and reintroduce tonight's guest mystery coffin opener, the one and only Mort Saul. Welcome back to the <laughs> But the famous comedian Mort Saul did indeed show up as a guest coffin opener. That is, uh, a local personality or celebrity traveling through who would be invited to knock on Svengoolie's coffin to rouse him at the show's start. And uh, Screaming Yellow Theater made use of uh, lots of parody songs. A werewolf's an animal with long shaggy hair. He howls and he loves to shriek and scare. And lots of corny vaudeville-style jokes and fake letters from listeners. Dear Svengul, I'm a nervous wreck. My wife makes me so nervous I've lost 50 pounds. Wow, that's really terrible, but... Listen, why don't you leave her? I will as soon as I lose eight more pounds. Eight more pounds, and it's cutting out. Okay, next question. Svengoolie's dreadful jokes were regularly punished by assaults with rubber chickens. You want to hit me with that chicken? Go ahead, give me a hit a minute. Roll the movie! Again, there was also a running gag involving uh, jokes about Berwyn, a suburb of Chicago, mocked in exactly the way Goulardi mocked Parma. Okay, enough of the hippie. Uh, in fact, we've almost reached the end of our 1971 cutoff. By this point, uh, whore hosts were multiplying in markets across the country, and it becomes harder to know who to cover a significant. Everybody had their own, and that's who was important to them, I know. Mine was uh, Dr. Bella Zarbo. Uh, I'll end with uh, one last host from Nashville, Tennessee. And now, from deep within the catacombs beneath our studio... Here is your master of ceremonies, Sir Cecil Creep. Did someone call? Oh, there you are. When Sir Cecil's Creature Features debuted in 1971, it was already Nashville's second go-round with the phenomenon. After a 1958 to 1967 run, 
of Shock Theater, hosted by a suavely smoking, eyepatch-wearing character named Dr. Lucifer. The host we'll now look at is Sir Cecil Creep. And he wasn't the only creep. Dayton, Ohio had its own Dr. Creep, hosting Shock Theater there, also starting in 1971 and running all the way to 1985. Nashville's Creep had the courtesy to spell his name differently, C-R-E-A-P, and he was also not a doctor, but a sir, and uh, would emphasize his alleged knighthood and status by whipping out a monocle from time to time. Sir Cecil was played by station cameraman and local theater actor Russ McCown, who uh, presented a nicely comic figure, a pudgy, balding little man crouching hunchback style under a heavy purple cape and sporting ridiculously uh, protruding monster teeth or dentures. Sir Cecil's set was uh, well-appointed with antiques collected personally by McCown. As per usual, Sir Cecil made the occasional jabs at the low-quality films and staged other gags like conducting a barbershop quartet of severed heads or giving away a free dead body for a Christmas which would turn out to be a frozen turkey. He also had the requisite trademark sign-off. Now, until next week, good night, sleep tight. And don't let the Betty Bugs bite. The show only had a short run, but in that time generated a devoted following. Sir Cecil would be mobbed at live events, and the Middle Tennessee Boy Scouts even created a Sir Cecil's Ghoul Patrol patch that could be earned. Three years after the show ended, the character was still beloved enough to be hired as a spokesperson for Jersey Farms, a monster-themed drink. Freaky Friends, the fun drink from Jersey Falls. Freaky Friends is a drink? Yes, there's Freaky Orange, Freaky Grape, and... But you can't keep a good ghoul down, and in 1983, the newly founded Nashville Network hired McCown to play Sir Cecil for a Saturday afternoon horror movie series. Here, in this clip from a live event promoting the show launch, you can get a better sense of Sir Cecil's droll personality. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Sir Cecil Creep, late of Transylvania. <laughs> Truly a rare and regrettable lapse in judgment on my part. I have taken up residence in the catacombs beneath your grand old opera house. Oh. Despite the twang of dulcimers, the incessant vocalizing of the mountain Williams above, I present film documentaries on the loves, lives, and culinary tastes of my sometimes subterranean companions. In other words, you host a horror movie. Uh, well, in a manner of speaking, yes, some of them are pretty horrible. Oh, 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 oh. The Phantom of the Opry, Sir Cecil Creek. Now, for that final note on Cincinnati's cool ghoul. I've already mentioned certain elements of the character that made me somehow uneasy, but there's a bit of history to the wig he wore that's particularly unsettling. The uh, cool ghoul, as you know, wore a bright reddish-orange wig about shoulder length. You never saw the top of his hair or head because he also always wore a little green cap 
just a sort of fringe of hair protruded from below the cap. Apparently that's because there was no upper half to the wig. In an interview long after the show and off the air, actor Dick Von Hain revealed that the wig had been created by his makeup and costume designer, Dana Bruce, but not for him. Bruce had made a custom order red wig for a customer who died in a car crash shortly after receiving it. As it turns out, the mortician at the funeral home to which the body was delivered, wearing the wig that is, found that he couldn't get the entire wig to lay correctly in the pillowy casket, and so he cut away a sizable portion on the backside. Being an acquaintance of Dana Bruce, the mortician asked if she might have any use for the section he had removed, and as it turns out, she did. Well, I, I do hate to end on such an unsettling note. So as a sort of palate cleanser, and in honor of the season, I'll close instead with a bit from a Halloween puppet show for children presented in 1970, one featuring the cool ghouls sidekick, Hattie the Witch. Hello and welcome to our special Halloween adventure and to the Magic Forest. I'm Larry Smith, here to introduce you to my many friends who live in the Magic Forest and to invite you to our Halloween surprise birthday party for Hattie the Witch. Our story starts, as most stories do, with Once Upon a Time. So... Once upon a time, a very powerful tree came to life. It opened its eyes and started to sing, to sing with the wind.